Hello, and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 40, The Road to Bull Run. The Battle of Blackburn's Ford, July 18th, 1861. Hello and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast again. After a long series of episodes, we've almost made it to the Battle of Bull Run. The Bull Run. The legacy of Bull Run is a curious thing. Taught to generation after generation of American schoolboys as the beginning of the Civil War, which is not altogether accurate, it nonetheless did mark the first great turning point of the conflict. At dawn on July 21st, 1861, public opinion in the United States, north or south, believed that one great battle would just about decide things. Now, admittedly, there might be a long period of mopping up and negotiations afterward. The northern public thought that the Confederacy would likely collapse once pressed, while the secessionists thought that the Yankee rabble would break and flee and beg for terms once they tasted southern shot and steel. Bull Run began the destruction of the old conception of war, fought along traditional European Enlightenment forms, and with Napoleonic tactics and strategy. The belief in a limited war of maneuver for limited political ends would not be finally decided until Shiloh nine months later. Yet in the East, at least, Bull Run shattered old romantic notions, as well as the firm hand of military experience and learning. It remained to be seen what might replace them. To begin the thing, we must discuss the personalities that led to Bull Run. Several of these are men we've met before, but a few new faces are even at this moment taking their first point on stage. First on that list is General McDowell. Irvin McDowell was another Ohio man, placing him in the good company of Generals Grant and Sherman. Unlike either of them, his record would not go onward to document great success. Despite a legacy of courageous leadership in the Mexican-American War, he seemed unable to ever quite pull off a solid victory in the Civil War. Nothing ever seemed to go right for McDowell. Spoiler warning. His record, at least on paper, seemed to augur for glory. Close to General Winfield Scott, McDowell served with distinction in Mexico and had taught tactics at West Point. He even studied in a French military school marking him as having a much wider body of military knowledge compared to nearly any contemporary officer. Yet he came to command not quite through merit, but through connections, which at least was not unusual in the early war period. Since he had friendships with a top military officer in the nation, and additionally, one of Lincoln's cabinet officials, Sam and Chase, his ascension became inevitable. And perhaps McDowell underrated the dangers he was facing then, and could not back down. Right at the beginning moments of the conflict, promotions to high rank came very easily to experienced officers, often available quite literally for the asking given the hilarious shortage of professionals. When, in those early days, newly minted Colonel William Tecumseh Sherman arrived in Washington to report for service, he found his old comrade McDowell proudly displaying a new Brigadier General's rank. McDowell told Sherman that the latter should have requested a higher rank himself, and was no less capable. To which the acerbic Sherman snapped, I know it. McDowell, though, seemed not to recognize the trouble he had gotten himself into, whereas commanders like Grant both understood the danger and responsibility, even though they did not shrink from it. When the time came to lead, McDowell protested that he was a mere supply officer, even though there was probably no more 
well-positioned man in the Union to take command. For that matter, so Grant had been, and Robert E. Lee and McClellan had served as engineers by training and in most of their military career. In any case, there were no obviously better men to lead, and so McDowell came to direct the volunteers massing at Washington and one way or the other guide them towards Richmond. Insofar as it goes, the good general did a great deal of good work. On a side note, which is of no relevance except that it is hilarious, McDowell became legendary, or at least infamous, for his appetite, perhaps the only man in Washington who could keep up with General Scott at dinner time. According to one story, he managed to polish off an enormous feast and then devoured an entire watermelon for dessert, which he pronounced monstrous fine. Even granting a certain amount of exaggeration in the telling, he apparently still held a well-earned reputation for gluttony. Pictures suggest, however, that he either had a very vigorous metabolism or a very active lifestyle, as photographs reveal a heavyset, but not porcine, figure who stood taller than most. In either case, as the summer's heat began to blaze over the South, we turn to the second player in this drama. President Abraham Lincoln resolved that the troops ought to move forward, and the sooner the better. Many reasons lay behind this desire. The first, based in the world of popular politics, was to disrupt the Confederacy before it had a chance to stabilize. More than a handful of newspapers urged the movement, forward to Richmond, before the Confederate Congress could even meet there. And indeed, taking Richmond would not only materially damage the Confederacy, but puncture its pretensions to being an independent nation. Forcing its legislature to flee before it even formally met for the first time would mark a substantial blow in the realm of public opinion. It might push forward Unionist sentiment in the North and damage the Confederacy's prospects for alliances abroad, which were at this time still very much a live issue. However, the very best political results might be to dampen pro-secession ardor in the border states, and perhaps even break the Confederacy's spirit as well. If even one state, such as North Carolina or Tennessee, had second thoughts at this moment, the results might well fatally split the Confederacy politically and end the crisis with no very great amount of bloodshed. Were these hopes realistic? Perhaps, but even if not, the attempt became necessary. In politics and war alike, men who dared nothing achieve nothing, and Lincoln's best shot at preventing a massive war lay in a quick victory. So, too, Lincoln had to deal with the American people, for civil wars are by necessity popular wars. The northern public proclaimed forward to Richmond just as the newspapers did, such as that at the New York Tribune. The rebel Congress, they printed, must not be allowed to meet there on the 20th of July. And there is a method to this madness where Richmond looked like an extremely valuable position for the Union to take and hold. Even the least informed strategist could easily see the obvious importance of the city. The material consequences of conquering Richmond could not be scoffed at. Apart from a major foundry called the Tredegar Ironworks, Union control over Richmond would most likely lead to the quick recapture of Norfolk and deprive the Confederacy of the rich resources of almost all Virginia and at the same time, it would firmly secure the safety of the capital at Washington and open a new, more advantageous front leading towards North Carolina, with fewer natural barriers to attack. Finally, once Richmond fell, 
the national forces in the east could fully unite from the disparate armies now working their way inward from the periphery of Virginia. Richmond was not itself the strategic axis of movement for the Confederacy, but it was among the most important central points for Virginia, with control of the railroads and the James River. To add to all of this, Lincoln had one final, very strong motivating reason to attack, for his armies were on the verge of melting away. The initial call put forth after the fall of Fort Sumter went out asking for 90-day volunteers. The hope was to muster a sizable army immediately and march on Charleston with overwhelming force, at which point more would not become necessary. Strange as it may seem in hindsight, for a moment that appeared a likely outcome. But the turn of the code of the Upper South destroyed that possibility. Yet all those 90-day men, still gathered and armed and trained, and in fact they were the most capable soldiers Lincoln had available, because they were all he had available. But the day was fast approaching when those soldiers, bored and inactive, would simply stack up their arms and walk away. Lincoln, who if nothing else, and he brought a great deal else, always had a finger on the pulse of the average man, fully understood that his soldiers would not simply wait around indefinitely. They needed a concrete goal and clear leadership in addition to motivation. More to the point, Lincoln could also see the known disposition of Confederate forces on the map, and his soldiers well outnumbered them right now. So he gave the order to advance, even as he worked at changing the default term of enlistment for soldiers to three years. Leading up to this choice lay a complicated dance as McDowell, Scott, and Lincoln sorted through their goals and strategies. McDowell, understandably nervous about such an important command, eventually provided a reasonable plan to move up to Beauregard's troops blocking the approach from Washington, which finally received approval from General Scott. The latter, equally reasonable in wanting the armies to move in concert and in full force, wished to delay the plan until he could completely guarantee success. Lincoln, knowing that he needed action and having seen that boldness could win great victories even with inexperienced troops, overruled him. McDowell would go forward as proposed. Now both McDowell and Scott hoped to drill the volunteers, followed by additional drill and then preferably drilling some more. Neither man had the slightest shred of confidence in the amateurs after the poor discipline among such men they had both witnessed in Mexico. Lincoln refused this request ultimately, saying, You are green, it is true, but they are green also. You are all green alike. Besides, the top officers in this bunch were still mostly good regular army men, including Sherman among them. And those without a military background were often important political leaders who, at the least, wouldn't likely show cowardice in the face of the enemy, lest their public repute go down the drain. There was one concern, however, that Lincoln may not have realized. The Lower South had begun arming and training long before the fall of Fort Sumter, and some of them, such as the troops of South Carolina, were fanatically committed to secession and therefore imbued with high morale. So, too, they could retain the advantages of the defense, which greatly eased the initial shock of combat and simplified battle. Yet Lincoln was not totally wrong. The Confederates broadly had less equipment and less consistent equipment. Some of their men came to war armed with hunting rifles or shotguns. Plus, the Virginia and North Carolinian regiments had no more training than the average Union one. McDowell's final concept had the virtue of relative directness, quite useful within an experienced army. He would divide his force into three columns, marching from the forward positions outside Washington towards the southwest, 
and then converge on the Confederate army of 25,000 near Centerville. McDowell, though lacking in precise maps, still had the advantage of short supply lines and familiar geography. Rather than attack directly, he would flank the rebels on the south and force the enemy into destruction or flight. This should, if all went well, force the front lines as far back as Fredericksburg, providing valuable breathing room for Washington, but in addition, dividing the main Confederate force from the Shenandoah Valley region. Crucially, a rail line ran conveniently between the Confederates stationed at Harper's Ferry and the main force at Centerville, sheltering just behind the Bull Run Creek. On the whole, this formed a solid plan. It also held the singular advantage of creating a straightforward pathway for each wing of the army and a clear objective for them at each individual step. And the nascent Confederate army gathering near Centerville had a definite weakness. Strung out far from Richmond, they had a long and vulnerable road to retreat if beaten. Unfortunately, McDowell had to contend with more than Washington politics. Richmond had a say in these events. They had several forces in the field, all of which faced their own problems. On the Virginia Peninsula, Prince John Magruder still blocked in advance by Butler, but he held a thin line as it was and despite the difficulties, could barely spare any man. The Confederate victory at Big Bethel changed no odds, and with firmer leadership, the Yankees might easily cut through him. To the west, General Garnett's body had scarce grown cold and his troops retreated, but McClellan had also stopped his advance under Scott's orders, which at least gave them a moment to recover and stabilize. Again, however, there were few troops to spare, and in this case those left also were disorganized by defeat. That still left two strong arms. On the Confederate left, Joe Johnston had superseded Thomas J. Jackson at Harper's Ferry. We'll cover his role in the future, but in short, consider him to be a canny strategist rather than a bold fighter. This style would cause him no end of personal grief in the future, but he also probably understood the overall position of the Confederacy better than anyone. In the current moment, Johnston looked around him at the opportunities his command offered, and he saw clearly that though threatened by another force of Federals, about whom we will discuss in a moment, his thousands of men could make a real difference if they linked up with General Beauregard's command. However, this meant crossing a 50-mile march, not impossible, but slow and difficult to do in the rough terrain. Yet again, the rail line did link the head of the Shenandoah Valley, not far away from his headquarters, directly with Manassas Junction, where General Beauregard held command. On that right and center, General Beauregard, lately come up from Fort Sumter, led the main force astride the rail route and roads between Richmond and Washington. Beauregard had many fine qualities, plus a considerable dose of imagination for military adventures. Unfortunately, he also contained within his frame the great flaw of Napoleonic egotism and irrational ambition. Beauregard always appeared to reach for some kind of grand victory, just exceeding his grasp, or sometimes far exceeding his grasp. He careened erratically between brilliance and madness. Nonetheless, his reduction of Fort Sumter made him a hero among secessionists, and raised his public notoriety such that he then received the most critical command in Virginia. He still made plan after plan for attacking Washington, D.C., all of which were negated in Richmond as entirely impractical. 
recognizing the need to avoid being too exposed to defeat from the superior army mustering at Washington, Beauregard occupied Manassas Junction, which was just that, a railroad junction, southwest of the city. To the north lay the Bull Run Creek, useful as a shield against attack due to the limited number of fords and bridgeheads. Later in the war, a position such as this might have appeared fatally weak to the discerning officer, as the physical barriers did not afford significant protection and no field fortifications had been erected. Yet by the standards of 1861, it allowed good ground to resist attack, with a five-foot riverbank and only a few bridges and forts to watch. The defender here would hold a sizable advantage. As mentioned, though, General Joe Johnston, often considered one of the best field officers in the Mexican-American War, had some trouble of his own to deal with, but fortunately to his rescue came... Union General Robert Patterson? Well, more or less, yes. You see, General Winfield Scott in Washington could read a map as well as Robert E. Lee in Richmond, and Robert E. Lee was then acting as Confederate President Davis's informal military advisor. Scott well understood that if Johnston combined with Beauregard, they could match any single army that might march against them at that time. Therefore, he took a step which likely never would have been permitted if it wasn't General Scott personally ordering it. He took an aging officer named Robert Patterson off a desk and placed him in the field. Frankly, Patterson was looking towards retirement instead of field service, and nearing 70, the veteran of the War of 1812 and the Mexican-American War had, quite frankly, earned it. Even the pressures of wartime bureaucracy overwhelmed his limited energies, for he had to manage the critical military department around Washington itself. Yet Scott thought Patterson a reliable and capable officer, and had no one else he trusted enough for the assignment. Patterson's orders, at least, were simple enough. As general, Patterson ought to keep on the offensive against Johnston, and, in effect, ensure the latter had no ability to move. Ideally, he might compel Johnston to fall back and defend the Shenandoah Valley and ultimately Richmond. Unfortunately, as it would come to represent an endemic problem of Union officers failing to grasp even the rudiments of strategy, Patterson did, essentially, nothing with it. But unlike most of the failures who followed him, he had at least had the decent excuse of old age rather than incompetence. That being said, Patterson will most likely make a key mistake in large part due to misunderstanding the importance of the railroad to warfare. Naturally enough, all his extensive experience took place long before the development of such tools. General Patterson took up his assignment in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, gathering troops together with the intent of recovering Harper's Ferry. From there, he marched out and crossed the Potomac on July 2nd, north of his goal. Here, he encountered part of Thomas J. Jackson's command and slowly drove back the Confederates over several hours at the village of Haynesville, in what is now usually called the Battle of Hoax Run. It wasn't much of a battle. The outnumbered Confederates did take disproportionate casualties, but nonetheless showed a good deal of fight. Casualties were light and limited. Still, Patterson was now past the Potomac and able to attack vulnerable Harper's Ferry from the rear. It lay only 20 miles away. Unfortunately, Patterson then delayed for crucial days when he held a substantial advantage immediately, with 50% more troops than Johnston, better access to his base of supplies, and the ability to easily flank the Confederate command at Harper's Ferry. In fact, nothing at all occurred until over a week later, 
when General Johnston took note that other Federal troops began their own line of advance from the east. This placed Johnston in a very exposed location. Besides, Harper's Ferry itself had little strategic value for the Confederacy, nearly indefensible and surrounded by hills. Its real value lay in the bridges of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, but Johnston simply destroyed them. The Union could rebuild, of course, but not instantly. General Johnson therefore retreated to Winchester, at the head of the Shenandoah Valley, in order to guard against an attack from any angle. Patterson thus succeeded in the first part of his campaign by July 14th, for a soldier simply marched into the town that Joe Johnson had already left. Crowing about his bloodless victory to Washington, he announced his intention to continue forward and conquer without casualties, which did not augur well for achieving the more important goal, holding up Johnston and preventing him from escaping or reinforcing Beauregard. From Harper's Ferry, Patterson slowly ventured toward Winchester, but quickly turned about and fell back to base instead of following Johnston. The ostensible reason was that word reached him that Joe Johnston was leaving Winchester, a town well-positioned to guard the Shenandoah and threaten north and east, in order to attack Patterson. This was not true, but even if so, the retreat made little sense. Harper's Ferry was not a valuable point. It controlled only one bridgehead over the Potomac, admittedly a good one, and the Union did not necessarily require it at this moment. The Confederates had already stolen the valuable gunsmithing equipment located at the armory on their way out. Again, Patterson's mission was to tie up Johnston, not to defend the line of the Potomac, and there was no real reason to fight Johnston from Harper's Ferry anyhow. Worse yet, Johnston actually vacated the valley entirely to join up with Beauregard, yet Patterson's limited scouting apparently failed to detect any such thing. Even with the valley wide open, he failed to advance, though this might have forced Richmond to recall all or part of Johnston's force, or allow a huge swath of land to fall permanently under federal control. It might even have led to the direct capture of Richmond. Nor did Patterson properly inform Washington, which could have made the obvious connection. It also became something of a hallmark of military mismanagement in the North, as a disturbing number of commanders simply would not move forward unless a superior, or even President Lincoln himself, personally shoved them. And again, it also demonstrated the weakness of federal scouting, which for a year or two after often had no idea where the enemy was and had no plans to go and find out. The upshot of all of this is that by the time McDowell began his movement forward to Centerville, Johnston's 10,000 soldiers were already en route to meet him. However, this was not quite as bad as it sounds, for it would take days for them all to assemble. Thus, General McDowell still had a golden opportunity to defeat the still weak force in front of him, with all the reinforcements strung out on the march or waiting on rail transportation. Joe Johnston and Beauregard would then face a desperate decision to defend Richmond and all of Northern Virginia while outnumbered and outgunned at any one point, with troops strung out over half of the state. And so, when his army set out early on July 16th, McDowell's assembly point at Centerville lay only 20 miles away, a simple march against a mere skirmish force. Unfortunately for them, it did not turn out quite so simple. The Union troops in this, the Army of Northeastern Virginia, despite having some practice marching, exercised approximately as much discipline as frolics and puppies. At any moment, they might fall out of line and go berry-picking, or sit around snacking on their rations. 
many of the less experienced officers, whose ranks came from political patronage or personal popularity, either let the problems go unaddressed or joined in, shooting pigs or chickens and, in general, treating a march towards a casual country stroll with a little bit of crime mixed in. But McDowell caused a large part of the problem himself, for he issued stern orders that no command be ambushed by masked batteries. This requires some amount of explanation. For unclear reasons, rumors swirled around the Union camp that the Confederacy had placed artillery all over the countryside, hidden by camouflage, and ready to bombard any unsuspecting Union soldiers that might approach. There are several reasons why this was not the case, but at a fundamental level, it was really dumb. The Confederacy had no such artillery to spare, nor would they risk allowing what they did have to be easily cut off and either destroyed or captured. As far as anyone is aware, basically no army has ever tried this with cannon, at least until the modern day, when the cannons started appearing on motorized vehicles. It was a somewhat silly notion. But the smart and quick officers were also conscientious, and orders was orders, so even some of them frequently stopped to scout possible rebel positions, holding up the line of march as everyone behind them then held up and the whole obstruction rolled backwards for miles. Worse yet, even many of the most experienced officers failed to perform their duties with intelligence and energy. For example, Brigadier General Samuel Heinzelman, who was actually leading a division, should, according to the plan, have headed to flank the south end of the Confederate position at Bull Run. Yet he ignored widespread problems with his advance, such as literally his entire command trying to cross a stream single file to avoid getting their feet wet. Finally, the exasperated Colonel Oliver O. Howard easily, if impatiently, marched his men through the knee-deep water. Other scenes such as this thoroughly marred the misadventure. Further, despite having the critical role in the battle plan, Heinzelman sloppily lost contact with McDowell and therefore left the entire plane up in the air, despite marching only a short distance away. The net effect was that the Union advance took three days, when it ought to have required only one. This low advance also meant that the Confederates posted at Fairfax easily had time to retreat when McDowell had hoped to surprise them and capture the lot, following a feint north while Heinzelman led that flank attack. More irritating still, by the time the Union army mostly arrived at Centerville, they had eaten all their rations, necessitating a halt while the supply issues were worked out. All of this having failed, McDowell ordered General Daniel Tyler to march at daylight on July 18th, while McDowell personally went off looking for Heinzelman. Tyler's specific orders were to advance on the line of Bull Run, scout out the situation, and, in effect, distract the Confederates while McDowell sorted out the organization problems and devised a new strategy for a scattered command. General Tyler performed his role perhaps a little too well. Two miles past Centerville, Tyler came upon Blackburn's Ford. Stopping well back from the riverbank, he surveyed the position and found it, more or less correctly, rather suspiciously quiet. Here General Tyler noted the presence of an enemy battery across Bull Run, and assuming the Confederates had laid out a trap, ran up a skirmish force and prepared to bombard anything within range himself, but mostly targeting those enemy's guns. Tyler's analysis turned out right on the money as the skirmish companies of the 1st Massachusetts immediately ran into sharpshooters hiding beneath buildings and trees on the riverbank. In an hour-long firefight, the Confederates gave ground, 
but slowly. Once the Union soldiers merged into open terrain near the river themselves, a barrage of rifle fire from across the creek forced them to retreat and take cover. At this point, General Tyler made a critical mistake. McDowell's adjutant arrived and recommended that Tyler back down for now. He had accomplished all the goals set out for his command this day and was facing a large but unknown part of the Confederate army, with only a quarter of the Union force. Yet Tyler's blood was up, and he insisted on a larger attack. Colonel Israel Richardson, chosen for this task, organized his brigade under fire and started the advance on the ford. This was no easy task, since he had to do so quickly and under intermittent fire, but he did succeed in arranging his units and advancing them. The problem, of course, lay in that they would have to somehow cross Blackburn's ford and then fight their way through the whole Confederate army. But on the Union side, no one could see the full scope of the Confederate units. General Tyler could, however, see Manassas Junction and still hope to capture it immediately. Richardson, who earned the nickname Fighting Dick for his legendary pugnaciousness, had exactly the right temperament to deliver such a blow. And here General Tyler made his real mistake. He had positioned himself up front with a battery of artillery and some cavalry, but as it was attracting enemy fire, it was becoming untenable. He gave the order to pull back to those troops right around them. Now, he did assess the situation properly, but he also did so at the worst possible time. Communications in Civil War battles most definitely did not happen instantaneously, and Colonel Richardson, with his 12th New York, was advancing bravely into a hornet's nest of musket balls and shells. Now, the troops dropped and scattered for cover, but instead of retreating, continued to fire volley after volley. This was not without deadly effect of its own, for across Bull Run, the troops of General James Longstreet struggled to keep his own soldiers in line and fighting. This he did, however, and presently, reinforcements joined them. Since they did not need to drive across the ford themselves, it was more than enough to keep up a volume of fire to deter the New Yorkers, who simply could not advance. And in this fight, the weight of artillery did not lie on the Union side, nor was their fire as famously effective as in many later battles. After perhaps an hour, the New Yorkers had to retreat, which they did without orders. They had faced up to combat better than many, and now ran low of powder and shot. However, their retreat, though not entirely unwarranted, turned into a mad rout as they fled right off the field, entirely heedless of discipline. The Confederates then switched their fire to the next Federal regiment in line, the 1st Massachusetts again. General Tyler finally recognized that his force was not going to accomplish anything here, certainly not without the backup of a much larger army, and ordered all the troops withdrawn. Richardson actually protested, as he still fully intended to kill every enemy in his path, but he obeyed and pulled back. Now, at this point, General McDowell arrived and delivered a furious dressing down of General Tyler's performance. General Tyler had, well, brought battle upon himself, unsupported, and in defiance of clear orders to the contrary, which were just a scout to perhaps skirmish. Much worse, he had fought poorly, failed to accomplish anything, and just bled some of his command. His battered troops then marched back to Centerville, bloodied, although not broken. Thus ended the so-called Battle of Blackburn's Ford, that was really just a minor skirmish preceding the real Battle of Bull Run, or Manassas as the Confederates called it. Fewer than 200 soldiers became casualties, 
and the troops displayed neither great courage nor cowardice in the end. The evidence does show a lack of discipline and organization, but not unusually so, given that McDowell's army had no time to shake out all the flaws and weaknesses. But in addition, to understand what had just occurred and why it is important, we need to step back a time a moment to observe how General Tyler accidentally walked into the bulk of Confederate strength, and how that inadvertently shaped the later campaign. Prior to the skirmish at Blackburn's Ford, General Beauregard, and frankly all the Confederate command, recognized that the most substantial Union push would almost certainly come at his position. Manassas held that key rail junction in northern Virginia. While the Union didn't need to stick that close to the railroad while on the march, they must secure the location before any further movements. Even a fool could see the threat, and Beauregard, whatever else he was, was no fool. That said, Beauregard made several questionable errors of judgment. He mistakenly believed that the Union attack would fall on Mitchell's Fort, a very short distance away from Blackburn's Fort. Although it was a mistake, it was not a mad idea. Any attacker would see the clear open ground leading to the ford from Centerville, and it was the most direct road. However, several other fords also existed in the area, and in fact it was never McDowell's intention to attack through Mitchell's Ford. Beauregard had guarded the others only lightly, although he used the latest developments in signal flags and signal towers to ensure that if threatened, his force could potentially converge on any attacker from any direction. The signal towers, too, gave him a clear scouting advantage and the ability to hopefully pinpoint federal movements. In theory. The problem here lay in that Beauregard fixated on the center and ignored the rest to his flanks. As we have seen, General James Longstreet, a North Carolina officer of good repute and a good friend of an obscure soldier named Ulysses S. Grant, held the line that Blackburn's Ford intended to be the Confederate right. Longstreet's presence was worth the brigade just by himself, but Beauregard had no intention of staying exclusively on the defensive. Indeed, he aimed to counterattack through that fort and destroy McDowell. This tendency towards bombastic won him no allies in Richmond, but he was correct in that sheer defense alone couldn't attain victory, and the main Confederate body lay quite nearby which is why General Tyler found him grossly outnumbered and outgunned the moment he showed up. General Beauregard, however, had one greater resource at his disposal, worth even more than guns, soldiers, and officers. Fresh correspondence from Washington. Even as General McDowell advanced almost blind and had to adjust his plans due to units dropping entirely out of contact, Beauregard had in fact been warned about the approach with clear intelligence about the entire operation. Now, one day we'll have to discuss Rose O'Neill Greenhow in detail, as well as the Confederate espionage organizations. But for now, understand that some Federal officers had been engaged in treason since 1860. When secession came, resignation from the service, especially if one did not then immediately go off to join the Confederacy, allowed a soldier to retire with honor intact. Yet not every man in uniform clung so closely to integrity. Among the shadier sorts, we count Captain Thomas Jordan. Virginia officers such as Joe Johnston and Robert E. Lee were rarely quite as pro-Confederate as Thomas, 
who furthermore had served in the Minnesota frontier, in the Seminole Wars, and in Mexico. Nonetheless, he betrayed his country. Unlike Johnston or Lee, however, Thomas didn't bother to resign his commission until 1861, even though his treason began earlier and in a murkier form. Late in 1860, he created a spy ring with one Mrs. Greenhow at the center. Rose Greenhow was born Maria O'Neill, but her family all called her Rose from an early age. As Maryland planters themselves, the O'Neills were definitely not poor. She then married the well-off and well-respected Robert Greenhow, and following his death in the early 1850s, maintained a boarding house in Washington. Probably predisposed to pro-slavery sentiments by her family background, she associated closely with men such as John C. Calhoun before his death. Her friends appear to have been broadly secessionist in sympathy. However, she had an additional reason to get involved. She got the benefit of adventure without taking on all that much risk. As a woman in an age of deeply romantic sensitivities, Greenhow could get away with a great deal without suspicion, and even more without risking the wrath of the legal system. This she proceeded to do without remorse. As a Washington socialite, she knew many young dames, often the daughters of pro-Confederate, plantation-owning Maryland families, who could, and did, carry messages right across the military lines of control. In that sense, she became the perfect spy, operating in plain sight. Unfortunately, she was also aided in her efforts by the slack discipline of soldiers who routinely allowed pretty young plantation bells to cross the lines, against orders and in violation of common sense. One such spy, Betty Duval, arrived at a Confederate general's camp on July 10th. There she unpinned her hair and produced a note from Greenhow, describing the Federal forces at that very moment just beginning their movement, as well as their full plan to advance on Centerville. General Beauregard thus received a full week's notice of the threat to his front, rendering the potential advantages of surprise on the Federal side beyond possibility. So much for the prelude of Bull Run, anyway. Because when we return, the first true, open, all-out conflict of the war will begin in deadly earnest. General Irving McDowell will accomplish the impossible and surprise General Beauregard despite all those advantages. And yet, the last-minute appearance of Joe Johnston and his force on the field will turn the tide. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.